chapter 1, Christ was Paul's life. This meant discipleship for Paul. It meant evangelism for Paul. We would say feeding and freeing here at Cornerstone. Paul's life was not only, uh, it was not just, uh, you'll remember I said a couple weeks ago when we were in Philippians 1, it wasn't just this long, uh, quiet time of meditation on Christ that Paul was held up in some cave meditating on Jesus and just waiting to grow old and die. That, that wasn't Paul's life. If you remember Paul's logic in chapter 1, he said, said something essentially like this. If I had my choice, if I, could, if I could pick the best thing that I could imagine, I'd go ahead to glory and I'd be with Christ. But, but that's not what God has for me. Instead, remember what he said? He said, I'll live for Christ. I'll live for Christ. I will understand my life here on earth to be, you remember, fruitful labor. And I'll do it for, who did he say? You, you, you. Church. So when we say that Paul's life was Christ, chapter 1. When we say that Paul's life was Christ, we, we could say, perhaps even more concisely than that, that Paul's life was for Christ. He spent his life on the work of the kingdom. He spent his life on the work of the kingdom. Not only was he willing to give his life, meaning the living of his life, to Christ, but he was willing to give his life even in the dying of it to Christ. Don't miss that. You know you've given your life to something or someone when you're willing to die for that something or someone. Amen? You just, you just better hope you've found that right one thing, right? You better hope you've landed on that right one thing. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That you would go to that extent, that in your living you would live even unto dying. And that was Paul, chapter 1. Paul would have rather died and went and been with Christ, he said. Remember that, that, that ridiculous statement? But until that happened, he lived his life for Christ, even if his living took him to his death. And I suppose in, in that case, death, the case of death for Paul, Paul would have got exactly what he wanted, right? To be with Christ via a death that was glorifying to the kingdom and to Christ. And so, with, with, with that sort of philosophy of living that we saw in, in chapter 1, this, this sort of philosophy of living and dying that the Apostle Paul had, you, you get a guy who sees even his, even his hardships, even the pains of life, even being, being thrown in prison as a way of exalting and proclaiming the very Christ that he loved. You might remember that uh, in Philippians 1, I made a couple comments, mostly for effect, but I've thought about them a lot since. Uh, comments regarding Paul's unorthodox views on his life and, and death. I basically said that, humanly speaking, he was crazy for thinking the way he did, for living the way he did. To say that your pain and your, your uh, future passing were a positive thing is to really flip conventional wisdom on its head. And I said a couple times as we saw some of these just, just uh, upside-down statements that Paul made in chapter 1 that, 
he was, humanly speaking, he was different than, than the most. Where did Paul get that from? The answer, Paul had an example for such an odd perspective on living and dying. He, he had an example. In chapter 2 of Philippians, we're going to see that Christ was Paul's example in both living and in dying. So let's go ahead and jump over to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to do it a little different this week. I'm not going to take you straight through the whole chapter, although we're going to cover the whole chapter today. As we are, you remember, we're not just looking at Philippians, but we're trying to get an idea of how to approach our Bible as we read on our own. So we've taken this sort of, this broad uh, perspective and we're narrowing in here. And we're kind of in the middle. We looked at the, the background information, the who, what, when, where, and why stuff. And now we're kind of, we're carrying this theme of Christ through each chapter, and we're looking at a chapter a week, and then we're going to come back behind, and then we're going to fill in some important details that we're going to somewhat gloss over today. But we're just we're looking for our major themes. Chapter one, Christ was Paul's life. Chapter two, Christ is Paul's example. Now, to show you that, we're going to jump straight to the example, verses six through eleven. So go ahead and find verses six through eleven, and then after that, I'm going to I'm going to give you the rest of the chapter. That way, you understand the context of the the great example that he's going to give here in Christ. Let's take a look at it. At what might be, frankly, the greatest paragraph on Jesus and the character of God ever written. And that's not just my feeling. This great example of chapter 2 is that of Christ's, what we call, incarnation. All right? That's the $10 word. His incarnate. It's literally his, his in the flesh. That's what this is going to be. Now, if you hadn't heard anything else I've said this far, listen closely to what I'm going to say because it's sort of key to unlocking this whole chapter in my mind. This example, the, the power of this example, okay, the point of this example, is that it flips conventional wisdom on its head once again. We saw this out of Paul in chapter 1. We're going to see it out of Paul's example in Christ in chapter 2. It flips conventional wisdom on its head. Humanly speaking, we're about to see the most ridiculous and yet the most wonderful moment in all of eternity. I'll say that again. We're about to see the most ridiculous, humanly speaking, and the most wonderful moment in all of eternity. And you might say, well, isn't that, isn't that moment the cross? Um, I would argue that without, without this moment, without the moment that Paul alludes to here, there is no cross. And hopefully you'll understand what that means by the time we're done. The last word in verse 5 is Jesus. And in verse 6, Paul is going to say that, number one, Jesus is and always has been God. Very simple. He is and he always has been God. End of verse 5, Jesus Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, stop right there, he is and always has been and always will be fully and completely God. I sometimes think that uh, as we typically refer to Jesus as the Son of God, many, to, many times we, uh, we, delineate to, we delineate Jesus to a level that is sub-God, that is not equal with God. And in some of our minds, maybe perhaps not God at all. He's, he's something other than God. Maybe partially God, maybe from God, but he's not, he's not the God. He's not the, not the big one. 
Paul's going to take great pains here to tell us that Jesus is God, fully, completely. Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, before, during, and after his incarnation, listen, before, during, and after his incarnation, he was, by his very nature, fully and eternally God. The Greek word translated here in your Bible, existed, he refers to something that not only is existing currently, but something that has always been from the beginning. Literally, the word means under the beginning. And so when he says that he existed this way, it doesn't just mean that he now exists. It means that he always has existed from the beginning. It's not a new thing. His existence is eternal here. William Barclay points out that this verb, existed, refers to, quote, that part of a person, or in this case God, which in any circumstance, any circumstance, whether in heaven or on earth, in Jesus' case, remains the same. He is unalterable, inalienable, unchangeable. Whatever it is, whatever it is that Paul's going to say, however it is that Paul's going to say he existed, namely in the form of God, the point is that he always has existed in that way. Okay, don't, don't miss that. And let me just encourage you, stick with me here for just a couple minutes through some of this technical stuff because we get a little bit of this technical stuff under our belt and the rest of this chapter, I believe, is just going to open up for you. Okay, hold on. That's what it means that he existed. To say that he existed in the form of God also affirms his very equality with God. Okay? Again, Paul's taking great pains to tell us Jesus is God. To say that he exists in the form of God also affirms his very equality with God. In the Greek, we have two words that we translate form. Either one, we translate them form most often. The two words are morphe and schema, from which we get the words morph and scheme. Okay? You know these words. You're familiar with these words. Listen. The morphe refers to the base nature or essential form of a thing which never alters. It is what you are, essentially. Your very essence, unchangeable. That's the morphe. The schema, the scheme, refers to the outer form which is subject to change. It, it, can, it can change its scheme. For us, our morphe is that we are humans. Our scheme is changing. We can be children, sons, husbands, fathers, etc. That would be our scheme. But our morphe never, never changes. The word here to say that Jesus is in the form of God is morphe. Jesus, in his eternal, essential, unchanging existence, is divinity. All right? And if Paul were being graded by you know ninth grade English teacher here, they'd, they'd mark him in red for redundancy here. He wants you to see that Jesus is God. Stay with me here because this, this point is simple. Again, I'm giving you some details here. I'm giving you some, some deeper stuff here. But here's the point. Here's the point. You can't get any higher than Jesus. There is nothing above Jesus. In his position, in his power, in his authority, in whatever you want to say, he is superlative. There is nothing above him. So he's not a step away from God. He is God. And when you're God, you get to enjoy all the rights of being God. 
You are superlative in every way. That's the point, okay? It says, although he existed in the form of God, although, Paul's saying, although he is the top dog, although you can't get any higher than who this man is. Look at what it says. He did not recall, regard this equality with God a thing to be grasped. My translation here, the New American Standard, says grasped. NIV, I think, says grasped. The King James is a little, uh, a little confusing. It says that he did not, uh, did not regard equality with God uh, to be robbery. And that's a little bit of a confusing, confusing terminology there. Let me, let me tell you what this means. To say that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped means he did not cling to, he did not utilize, he did not assert, hold on to with all his might, clench as a treasure not worth releasing. What? What was it that he didn't, didn't grasp? What was it that he didn't clench? What was it that he didn't hold on to so dearly that it was a treasure not worth for any reason releasing? What was it that he let go of? What was it that he loosened his grip of? The very equalities, and the word there, equality, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's actually plural, referring to every one of his equal traits with the Godhead. He did not see any of his equalities a thing to be held on so dearly that there would be no reason ever that he might loosen his grip. Point. Here's the point. Don't miss this. When you're God, you get all that comes with that title. When you are that superlative, you get all that comes with that title. Jesus had all the rights and privileges of God, which he could never, by the way, which he could never lose. Yet for some reason, and I'll go ahead and tell you what the reason is, it's you and I. It's humanity and his love for humanity. For some reason, he didn't stubbornly cling to those equalities. John MacArthur says it like this. He yet refused to selfishly cling to his favored position as the divine son of God, nor view it as a prized possession to be used for himself. Was Jesus fully God? Clearly, he was. Did he have all the abilities, all the power, all the might of, of, a, of a complete and full God? He certainly did. Did he give those things up? In other words, did he lose them? No, he did not. You see, if Jesus were to have lost these things, then this whole argument, this whole chapter falls apart because the example doesn't hold any water. The truth here, the, the, the nugget here, is that Jesus had every right and privilege of God, because he was God, by the way, and yet he did not cling to them. He willingly loosened his grip, thus creating the greatest example in all of history. Uh, the temptation of Jesus illustrates this very thing. He could have called on more than 12 legions of angels to come to his defense, but he did not. He could have turned uh, stones into loaves of bread, but he did not. Could he? Sure he could have. Would he, for his own 
selfish needs for his own reasons? No. He chose to loosen his grip on those things. He chose not to avail himself of that authority, of that power. Was it there? You better believe it was there. In full force. At a very word, it was there. It showed up. You know where it showed up? It didn't show up when when Jesus could have used it for his own personal use. It showed up when Jesus saw that others needed it. When there were a great multitude and only a few fish and only a few loaves. The power was there. The power was there. Did he use it? The point of this passage, the point of the example of Christ is, he loosened his grip on it. All right. Let me say one more thing about what Jesus was willing to give up here. And don't miss this. When you're God, you get not only the power that comes with that position, but you get the glory and the honor and the nobility that comes with it as well. So make sure you understand that what Jesus loosened his grip on was not just the ability to do miracles. He loosened his grip on not only his power, but his exalted position. He loosened his grip on the equality that gave him glory that would cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that he is God. He loosened his grip on that. That that right, that privilege. He didn't cling to it. There are some things so valuable we describe them as treasure. We hold them so guarded and tightly to be sure that they are never at risk. What greater thing could there have been? What greater thing could there ever be? Think about this. What greater thing than to be God? Right? There's nothing above it. Can you think of anything better? Any greater perk? No. Now let me ask you this. Humanly speaking, what more foolish thing could one do than to set that very thing aside? Humanly speaking, that's the most ridiculous thing one could ever do. To have the most treasured thing and to loosen your grip on it. And yet, here we find the most wonderful moment of all eternity. The moment, the highest the highest, the fully God man willingly became the lowest. The moment the highest willingly became the lowest. Watch this. Paul's built a case for the, for the height of Christ, right? He's, he's put him so high up, there, there's nothing above him. There can never, ever be anything comparable. He is a superlative. He's built a case for the height of Christ. Now we watch Christ make a, make a decision that is, humanly speaking, it's ridiculous. And at the same time, it's amazingly wonderful. And all of eternity hinges on this decision, this decision of Christ. Look at what it says here. Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7. But look at what he did. He emptied himself. That word empty is also translated in other places in the New Testament, nullified or to make void. It doesn't mean that he lost it. He did not avail himself of it. He emptied his self. His self. He took the form of a bond servant. A bond servant owns nothing, claims nothing of his own. 
all he has is what his master has. This is the very word that Paul claimed in Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, willing servants to the king. This is what Jesus says of himself. Took the form of a bond servant who was made into the likeness of men. Are you seeing the distance that this God has, has begun to travel now? was made into the very likeness of man. That means that he didn't just look like man, he became fully man. He was of the same stuff as man as well. And now, we'll get to this later as we pick up more details. We cannot fully comprehend how this works. It does not mean that he ever became any less than fully God. At the same time, he became fully man. Or else... He wouldn't have accomplished what he accomplished. It also says that he was found in the appearance of man. He was found in the uh, appearance of man. That's again the word morphe. He was found in the morphe of man. Just as much as he was God, he was man. So much so that his divinity was seen by men, wasn't seen without the divine intervention of God. If you just saw Jesus... You wouldn't have thought he is, he's God. He was so human that unless there was a divine intervention, unless an angel came and told you, unless he told you, unless the Spirit of the Lord tells you, Peter, he was a man by all indications. He was found in the appearance of man. He was really, truly in Carnet. He was really, truly in the flesh. This was no aberration or sleight of hand by God. Now look at, look at the next statement. That's what he did physically. That's what he did physically. That's the distance he came physically. Now I want you to see his mentality. He, what does it say? He humbled himself. To say that the greatest of all eternity, the top dog, the superlative of all eternity, humiliated himself. That's a strong word, more than humble, but I use it intentionally. He voluntarily humiliated himself for our sake. It doesn't fully portray what's happening here. In fact, there aren't words to describe the ridiculousness of this humiliation and the extravagance of love that it must have taken for him to lay aside that glory, to loosen his grip, to go such a great distance. And yet, verse 8, he became obedient to the point of death, even the most humiliating death. It says, death on a cross. Cursed is he who is hung on a tree. You could go no lower. Jesus traveled a greater distance physically and mentally than we can, we can comprehend. All right, I told you. I told you that chapter 2, the theme that we're following here, the outline... That in chapter 2, Christ is Paul's example. Okay? Right? You see that? That's the example. Uh, if you're a thinking person, you might have been asking yourself, example of what exactly? It's not enough to say that Jesus is an, his example. Example of what? Specifically. I mean, is Jesus his example of patience? His example of justice, mercy, holiness, honor, kindness? Certainly Jesus is an example in all those ways. But in our context, in Philippians 2, what is he saying? Jesus is an example of. 
The lesson of Christ here is in the word humility. Humility. Humility that serves a purpose. Humility that shows up in activity towards others no matter how above them one might be. And can you get any higher than where Paul says Jesus is? You can't. Can you go any lower than the distance he traveled? No, you cannot. It is, it is the divine example of humility. What is the best example of humility we could humanly come up with? You would have to find, you would have to find the highest and then send them the lowest, and that would be the superlative example. And that's what Paul's done. He's gone to, great, to a great extent to say that Jesus is the highest. And yet, although he is the highest, even though he was the highest, he did not regard his equalities He did not regard his position worth not doing what he decided to do on our behalf. Why is this passage here? Okay. Why is this passage here? Why is this why is this example here? Is it here to teach the incarnation? Not primarily. It's not here primarily to teach the incarnation, but I, I can't find many passages that do a better job. But if you want to know why Paul was writing this letter, if you want to know what he was saying in chapter 2, if you want to know why this example is here and how Paul is using it in the flow of his, his letter, his personal letter to his friends at Philippi, it's here because the Philippians needed a strong dose of humility. The Philippians needed a strong dose of humility because their lack of humility, which we could call pride, elevating one's self, It was wreaking havoc on their unity. Later, in chapter 4, he'll call out two women by name for this, for this issue. Let me show you why this is here. Listen to the chapter now and see if you can't tell why Paul holds up Christ before these, before these Christians. I'll start back in the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection, compassion, and that word if there means sense, Paul's saying if there is any of that, and there is, he's assuming, he's inferring that there is that very thing. If there is any of that, make my joy complete. How can they do that? How can they make Paul's joy complete? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. All pictures of unity. All demonstrations of unity. How do you get that, Paul? Verse 3. Well, you do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves, no matter how high you might be. Regard others more than yourselves. See where he's going? Humility of mind. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself. Whatever position you might have, whatever authority you might have, whatever power you might have, whatever wisdom you might have, loosen your grip for the sake of the others. Keep going. 
Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's the transition to the example. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? We already looked at it. The attitude of total humility, willing to go from the top to the bottom. Paul, what do you want from us? I want you to want you to have the same attitude that Christ had. What attitude did Christ have? Christ had an attitude of complete willingness to become a servant of servants. You can't get any higher than Jesus was. You're not going to outdo him by going any lower. Have that same attitude. Have that same attitude. Skip past the example. Verse 12. So then, my beloved. This comes right after the example. So then, my beloved. Just as you were You have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that you will, what? Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Could the church at Philippi live a life modeled by Paul in chapter 1 if they had disunity. They could not. They would disqualify themselves. He says, prove yourselves to be blameless in this crooked and perverse generation among whom as you appear as luminaries, literally stars. Stars are used as directions. You're to be guides in the world. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have no reason to I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, look at Paul's sacrifice here, following suit of Jesus. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, well I'll rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too. Philippians, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Where's that joy come from? Humbling yourself for the sake of others. 19. By hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Now this seems like a transition, but it's all the same point. He's given us the great example. He's given us his self as an example. And now we're about to see that he's going to give us two of his co-workers as peer examples, if you will. The first is Timothy. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit. Look at what Paul thinks of this guy. Look at this guy's resume. His character resume. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. What is Paul saying? There are very few guys who are like this. I have no one else of kindred spirit. No one else thinks like this. Like what? That they're genuinely concerned not just for themselves, but for your welfare. Most people, verse 21, they all seek after their what? Their own interests. Not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth. Timothy proved himself. They know of his humility. They know of his servanthood. You know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. How so? Like a child serving his father. Completely submissive. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately 
as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming shortly. Now he gives another example, another example of humility. But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. The church of Philippi had sent Paul Epaphroditus as an encouragement. Look at what Paul thinks about him. Verse 25, he's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier who is also your messenger, literally your angel. Okay? How would you like to be called someone's angel here on earth? And minister to my need. Because he was longing for you. Watch this. You're about to see another guy go crazy right here. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Did he have just a little cold or something? You know, he wasn't feeling good, sprained his ankle or something? No. Verse 27, for indeed he was sick to the point of death. You see, see this? You see this guy? Another guy gone crazy. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. All in the name of Christ. Do you realize what it said there? Paul says, I'm going to send him back to you because he's, he's worried sick. Because you're worried about him because he's about to die from some illness because he's out here serving in the gospel work with me. You catch that? That's ridiculous. This guy was worried to the point where Paul had to send him back because he was so worried, because they were so worried, because he was about to die. Man, if I'm about to die, I'm not worried about the rest of you guys. He says, send me back so that, so that they're not so worried. It's ridiculous. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me. Paul needed this guy so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Did Paul care for this man? Did Paul care for the Philippians? He sure did. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. 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 What are they to think of this guy? Verse 29, they were to receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. What are we to think about men and women who will give their life for the very thing that the God who is the highest descended to give his life to? What are we to think about those kind of men? We embrace them and we elevate them. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Basically, he came and he filled in gaps where the Philippians couldn't do it in person. All right, do you, get, do you get that Christ is the example? What is the example of? He's the example. He's the supreme and ultimate example of humility. In a few weeks, after we get through each chapter, we're going to come back and we're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with this concept of humility. We're going to apply it to our place of service. Okay? Um, what would a church look like if we became like Christ in His humility? What problems might we avoid? What disunity might we avoid? What loss of reputation and example and testimony might we avoid? What miraculous sign to a lost world might we portray if we have the same attitude that was also in Christ? Namely, that even if you have rights and privileges and wisdom and honor and power and glory, etc., to whatever degree you think you might have those things, uh, you can't get it any more than Jesus had it. And if Jesus 
was willing to loosen his grip on those things for the sake of the gospel, the working out of his kingdom plan, Paul would say that for me to live then is is Christ. I'll do that same exact thing. Philippians, you do that same exact thing. Cornerstone, um, ask yourself this question this week. Here's your homework. Contemplate this statement, if you will. One of the greatest examples in the life of Jesus on earth of this, of this humility is the passage of Jesus taking off his outer garments, picking up a towel, lowering himself um, to essentially the lowest place he could be, and washing the feet of his disciples. I often think one man challenged me uh, a while back with this thought, with this statement. If Jesus, who now we've seen in Paul's words that he's God, okay, don't miss that. That's the, that's the, big, the big piece of this puzzle. If Jesus can wash men's feet, then I can blank. Would you contemplate that this week? If Jesus, if the God of all creation, the God of the universe, the creator of all we see, if he could humble himself to the point where he would wash men's feet, then I can do what? How can I serve? How can I humiliate myself? How can I lower myself? How can I not please myself. How can I? You fill in the blanks. We do that. Uh, then this church becomes a light to this world like never before. They will know that you are mine by your love for one another. That is the miraculous sign of the church. How do they know we're legitimate out there as they look in? That a bunch of ugly sinners can come in, sit in the same room, do life together, give over our rights and our privileges, loosen our grip on our desires, our wants, our needs, and put others in front of us? That is the miracle that God himself said this world will see and know that you're the real deal. You're the real deal. Let's pray.